I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we're here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. It's awesome to have you guys with us. Today is kind of a special episode. This is going to be the last episode that we record until August. And in today's episode, we're going to reflect on the recent uh, news that came out of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade and the Casey decision and essentially making it where there's no constitutional right to an abortion, according to the Supreme Court. And now it's up to the people and the elected representatives of the nation and the state. So uh, we're going to talk about that, kind of our personal reflections on it, theological reflections, as well as some uh, pastoral implications for the church. So Seth, uh, this is kind of the second, I don't know if it's the second in a row, but second in recent memory where there's been kind of a, a recent events situation that we're talking about. Is this going to become a new new trend for us? I sure hope not. I think it's always trying to ride the line between being reactive and being responsive, and that's not always clear where that line is. Uh, but I think especially with uh, people in and out of town over July, we want to be able to speak into what's a big deal and affects a lot of people and what basically everybody that I know has some degree of emotional reaction to, right? That's one of the measures. There's yeah, it's hard to hear this and go, eh, shrug. Yeah, people tend to have an opinion on this, either because of the household they're raised or the churches that they were nurtured in or the party that they're affiliated with. Um, but largely, the stronger the emotional reaction, probably the more personal it feels and in, in is. Either there's uh, a, something that's happened in the past that you've been a part of or at least uh, a situation you created slash uh, led through, or there's like a sense of fear about the future on what might happen to you or your loved ones or things like that. And so there's emotional connection to this all around. You know, I remember thinking like people, when you hear politicians talk about uh, women's rights right? uh -huh. and if they have daughters, they go like, well, speaking as a father right. of daughters. And it's like, did you not care about women until you had a daughter? <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. You also have a mother and have a lot of women in your life. And, yep. and so everyone is really inextricably connected to because if if you're alive it's because a female woman gave birth to you yeah period the end and so uh, this reproductive realities whether you call them abortion rights or reproductive rights or being pro-life or being pro-choice the language we use tends to frame the conversation tremendously but the reality is we're all here because of someone's uterus and so this affects us and is connected to us and we have some skin in the game literally on this issue and so yep. Sure. Uh, there's no chance that it's very, very difficult people not to care about this issue. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, we've all been probably reading things, listening to things, watching uh, content, you know, people reflecting on different stuff. I've heard different, I heard one uh, podcast episode with some folks who come from kind of a constitutional law perspective. They were analyzing the you know, decision in one particular way and other commentators analyzed it another way. I mean, there's plenty of voices talking about this, Seth. Why would we add ours to the fray? Well, as always, you know, we think we have a lot to say about everything. And so that's... <laughs> remember, I don't think that's why. That's probably not why. But I, I remember when we first started this podcast, I heard a joke one time that said, what do you call two guys who love their opinions too much? A podcast. <laughs> a podcast <laughs> and so yeah. I was like, I don't know if we want to start a podcast, get lumped in with all that. But uh, no, mostly the reason we're speaking of this is because I think part of being a pastor is includes thinking about public realities, right? Christ was crucified in public. Uh, he was crucified in the public square. Uh, he made a universal claim that include, included everything. He called himself king, and he was crowned as king, ironically, by those who killed him. Right. Uh, the, even the word soter, savior, uh, has to do with the one who's saving the people from the previous regime. It's a political word, savior, you know, the... yeah. And a lot of times we think about our presidents as saviors from the previous president. And so it's like a, a religious motif there. And so some of these major public policy issues, politics issues, uh, Christ necessarily speaks into them and the word, the word of his, his word necessarily speaks into them. And I think part of us trying to pastor people is kind of giving some frameworks and how to think about this stuff. Uh, we, we don't want to speak past scripture to bind consciences beyond what scripture says, but we do want to kind of give some helpful biblical, theological, historical, sociological frameworks that hopefully give people the ability to process the information. Even if folks listening don't land exactly where we land on every detail of things, hopefully our inputs help shape their contours and give them a little, a little more ability to think through stuff. Yeah, and you mentioned the word pastor a couple of times. I feel like that 
really is the shape of what I want to bring to this conversation. I know you do too, is we're not here as pundits. You know, we're not social commentators. We're pastors. And we do this whole podcast really for the people of Redemption Gateway. I realize there are other people who listen in. And for those of you who are uh, not part of our church, hey, welcome. Uh, but this podcast really, this episode and all of them is for those people. We want to help shape the people that we have some spiritual responsibility for. And so that's, I think, where we're coming from. Yeah, I think it's important to humanize this issue as well. It's easy for us in Arizona to think about the Supreme Court and Congress and the Senate and the president as those they people way over there somewhere else. Like we're literally very far away from D.C. Sure. And so one of the things I'm grateful for is some of the folks I've uh, that have been in my life that I've discipled have now gone on to work in public policy in D.C. And so actually Friday after the ruling came out, I called one of my buddies and I was like, hey, what do you think about this? You're in D.C. He worked, him and his wife both are in public policy and, and work in that direction. And or if you, what do you think about this? And also, if I was going to do a podcast about this, what would you hope that I would say and not say? Uh-huh. You know, because he's he's in the weeds on it, and it's it's so tough. now it's a third guy with an opinion. A third guy Let's get him opinion, on the podcast. Yeah. Well, he gave me his wife's <laughs> he gave me a bunch of his wife's opinion too. But the he mostly like him and his wife. The main thing uh, they said their first flinch was, "Can you please pray for our city?" Wow, yeah, that was the first thing, which was surprising. I don't know why. You know, we Christians tend to be pretty good about when something bad happens to offer their thoughts and prayers, right? Mm-hmm. But I think. The Bible's full of stories of great things happening and people giving thoughts and prayers, right? Like, yeah, sure. So the first lunch to pray, and he was asking specifically, uh, this was Friday morning, he's like, there's going to be rioting and protesting, and his wife got sent home from work, like, hey, protect yourself, get out of the streets, wow. get home, yeah, lock it in, people are going to be very upset. And and he said, this creates a ton of work. You know, part of it is Roe v. Wade barred certain types of policy and now opens the door to more types of policy. So there's just literally more law work yeah. Uh, policy work to be done and that can possibly be done. And so it creates work for everyone, creates more work for everybody and it creates possibly safety risks for the folks doing the work. And so he just asked, can you ask your church to pray for DC, pray for our safety, pray for our work, pray for our diligence and our ability to do good work out here. And I just thought that was his first, his first sure. thought. And so I'd say, say that for Redemption Gateway as well, that we uh, pray not when things are just going bad, but things are going well. I've heard it said, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes, mm. right? And what's kind of what's saying is there's lots of atheists not in foxholes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that when things tend to go well, uh, it's easy to forget the Lord and take him for granted. And when you get what you want, a uh, prayer of gratitude uh, is uh, sometimes far behind. And so I think praying regularly regardless of outcomes is something that we need to get used to. And wa- not watching the news and just praying when it's bad, but also watching the news and praying when it's good or or neutral or mixed and yeah well i think for me i mean even just getting the news it was like i mean first of all i went really like i mean in a sense not totally because we had a couple months ago this leaked opinion from justice alito that made you think okay this could really happen but i think for a lot of my life it's been interesting to me because i've i've been committed to a pro-life cause but over a while just kind of become a little bit jaded like it doesn't matter anyway like this thing's not changing like I, I, I don't want to support people who are pro-abortion, but even when I support people who are pro-life, nothing the needle doesn't move. Like nothing changes. Hey, and you have so, you have local politicians running on saying they're pro-life, and you're like, sorry, bud, doesn't matter what you think. Yeah, makes no difference as you're the county commissioner or something. Yeah, it's like but, watch, but watching now, watching the NFL on TV. You're like, well, I think the play they should do is, and it's like, well, it turns <laughs> out you're on the couch, not on the sidelines, so it doesn't matter. Totally. And that's what it's like with local senators who have an opinion on being on, on life issues or choice issues. Well, that's what it was like, right? That's what it was and like, now yeah. it's going to be, as you said, it's opening a whole different, uh, you know, opportunities for different policies and different approaches. And we'll talk more about that. Yeah. So that, that gives me the second thing that they asked for, and then we can move on about what they said and we can move on to what we think is, yeah. they said, just realize this creates a lot more work and creates more opportunity for work that there literally will be more pregnant women and more uh, babies being born. Yeah. And those babies, those women that are remaining pregnant and those babies that are being born are ones that in previous situations may have not been born or may have not remained pregnant. And so the main reason that people have abortions tends to be some form of economic insecurity, which is a financial need. And we can debate all day long about perceived needs and real needs or uh, the, the situations that cause the needs, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, is 
uh, the economic insecurity is there and it's and it's stressful and it's difficult and it makes me think about uh, I noticed this a ton when Jay was first born and we're buying a baby formula just how nuts it is that you go to Fry's and Gilbert you know one of like the 85282 like one of the most suburban of all suburban situations mm-hmm. where it's pretty well off and nothing there is under lock and key except for baby formula wow that what people are most inclined to that's f- amazing what people are most inclined to feel the need to steal is stuff not for them but for their child or for their children so hold on so formula baby formula is under lock and key at a grocery store i mean i, I haven't bought baby formula in a while so i'm out of the loop on that i mean last time i was there which was this is, so this is before the formula shortage, you know. Oh wow! Okay. So this is not like so not just recently. Yeah, not baby Olivia because the formula shortage has affected that, which is a whole well, other situation. Ago. Yeah, yeah. Years ago, before the pandemic, before the whatever, baby formula is under lock and key at, at mm. Walmart and wow and Fries in Gilbert eight five two nine five. And I'm sure it is elsewhere. And I remember seeing that for the first time, having a three month old at home, and just feeling like I got punched in the gut. That I'm like yeah. thinking. Sheesh, the, you know, the brisket's not under lock and key. The <laughs> right. protein powder's not under lock and key. The sure. bread's not, the bread and peanut butter is not under lock. It's, yeah, well. it's the baby formula. And just thinking about how even if, if even in Gilbert, Arizona, of all places, the formula needs to be under lock and key because there's great concern for theft, uh, how much more other places yeah. where, where people don't have the margin or the perceived margin. And, and just that reality that uh, we have a lot of women um, young women, uh, married women, unmarried women, who are now gonna not have not have the ability to escape the responsibility that pregnancy creates, yeah, and that creates opportunity for the church to do work. And so, what my buddy said was like, "Hey, this is an oppor- th- This is something that the church needs to double down, triple down, quadruple down on getting busy, caring for women and and infants in particular." that are not in a position to maybe care for themselves or who are terrified beyond belief. Yeah. And and that's what a lot of uh, pro-life work focused on previously was not just creating the situation where abortions were not legal because you couldn't really do that, yep. but trying to create situations where abortion was not interesting or it didn't seem like it would seem was undesired. You yeah. didn't want it. Sure. You didn't feel the need that if, what if every woman who was pregnant was certain they'd have plenty of formula to give their baby Right. was certain that their medical expenses would be covered, was certain that uh, despite being married to or with some abusive doofus who's going to, like, destroy uh, the possibility of, like, having a healthy childhood for this kid, what if they yeah. knew I'd be protected, I'd be cared for? And so especially like, talking about issues like domestic violence, issues um, like like bad fathers who maybe even created this child through, like, some type of marital rape or... Um, other situations like that, like the church showing up to advocate for, create appropriate distance, and be a safeguard for women who are in relationship with bad men or have connected with bad men in various ways, and to be able to circle around and care for these infants. And so what if there is a dramatic uptick in church engagement in helping address issues like of those insecurities? And so we've, we've supported people for a long time, like Hope Women's Center, uh, Choices Pregnancy Center, Vineyard Pregnancy Center, uh, those are some of our major partners that we've given tons and tons of time and money to, and I think this is an opportunity for Redemption Gateway to say yes and more, even on the side of foster care, kinship, and adoption. Like, yeah. there, if you think we've had a foster care crisis to this point, and we have, and we have, it's gonna get more. Yeah, um, and I think that these are opportunities that we need to be grateful for. That it's it's. Uh, caring for these vulnerable people is what the church is called to do. And that's part of the biblical arc, dramatically speaking. And so those are like the first two big things. I think it's like, we need to pray and work. And that's kind of part of core spiritual formation for the Christian is to pray and work, to work and pray, to uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus and ask for Jesus to do things uh, at the same time. Like it makes me think about, I just taught a couple weeks ago at the church in the book of, uh, out of the book of Genesis, when it says there was no fruit growing in the garden, because the Lord had not yet caused it to rain, and the man had yet to work. And that's the idea of praying and working. You pray for God to make it rain, and you pray, uh, and you work. You get your hands dirty. And this yeah. is just like all Christian activism and activity. We pray and we work, we work and we pray. And I think being sober about how this creates more work, not less work, that this is not 
a finish line for anybody who calls himself pro-life. This yeah. is, if anything, kind of permission to play. Now the game has started in a different way, and mm-hmm. we need to get engaged and get our hands dirty and fill our calendars with the chance to care for vulnerable people. Yeah, well, and I am so grateful for, and I know we're so grateful for the, the people that have been doing that work, and it's substantial, right? And you indicated that. It's not like we just start, now we get started. It's like, no, a lot of people that are part of our church and a lot of the partners that we have that are connected to our church have been doing this work, and this is a chance, like you said, to double down, triple down, get more engaged in that work. And so I'm really grateful for those folks. I mean, I feel like this was a day that a lot of us never thought would come, and it came, and um, there's a sense in which it's like, wow, I can't believe this happened, and also, <laughs> uh-oh, what now? <laughs> um, and, and yet at the same time, I realize as I say that, not everybody had that feeling. There are people in our church there are definitely people outside our church who don't have that feeling at all, who this mostly creates either anger or fear or anxiety or worry about different situations that they're in or their concern for the vulnerable. Some of it, I think it comes out of saying, you know what, I don't know if I see a church that is that good at caring for the vulnerable. I feel like I see a church that cares a lot about the pro-life thing until a kid's born, and then it's like, eh, I don't know. Now, some of that's a straw man thing, and some of that's not totally fair. But, uh, you know, I, I understand that that feeling and that not everybody comes from that same place. The other thing that I'm really mindful of in this conversation is how many people have been personally impacted by abortion. That this isn't an issue out there. This is something people have personally had to weigh. Many people in our church have personally had an abortion or encouraged an abortion, or supported an abortion, or in some cases maybe even pressured an abortion, where this is not an out there thing. This is very much in here thing. And I think about the the way that this stirs up those emotions and those feelings. Um, yeah, without a doubt. And I think that being stirred up, most of the time what happens when we're stirred up is we want to blame and shift and we have negative feelings and we want to find the reason but the reality is like we have buttons because there are buttons right and and trying to do the honest work of identifying why my buttons are my buttons why my anxiety is my anxiety why my triggers are my triggers is part of that and for those folks listening who have either pressure or been a part of or had or contributed to or maybe you were the the disconnected you know loser boyfriend who made a woman feel like I'm not gonna be supported and so they chose an abortion over being a single mom and Here's, here's just what I want to say to you or to us, as, in generally speaking, is the Bible does not paint a rosy picture of good people gathering together to proclaim the name of Jesus. That's not what it is. Like, if you look closely at the biblical narrative, I think a lot of times from a distance, it's like, man, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I'm not really holy enough. I'm not pure enough because of my past. I can't be engaged or um, Jesus doesn't want me based on X, Y, and Z. But I just like there's just two characters I want to draw our attention to that I think hope, hopefully help us realize everyone in the Bible was basically exclusively terrible, <laughs> except for Jesus. Yeah, sure. And if we're preaching some form of Christianity that doesn't say, hey, we're all basically terrible sinners, sure, except for Jesus. Like Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, murderer, yeah. killed someone in anger. Like, not out of economic insecurity, not out of, you know, like, right. He lashed out and, and, you know, and, and so the whole like shaper of the thrust of the Old Testament Mm. is a guy who, before he even started his public ministry, before he even started to be used by God and like, I mean, he kind of was being used in small ways, but before he did the main thing he did, yeah, uh, needed the grace of God tremendously. And so he, he's the one who, recorded the Lord's words in Exodus 21, saying, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. And I imagine what Moses felt like writing wow. that yeah. commandment. Sure. He's hearing the Lord say, all right, write down these Ten Commandments. Okay, know the guys before me. Got it. You know, okay, now Moses, write this one down. Uh, thou shalt not murder. And now you've got a murderer writing down the commandment from the Lord. Wow. Thou shalt not murder. Feeling implicated, recognizing, oh, that includes me. I'm a violator of the commandment. Like, from the beginning, before we even get started here, I haven't even told this to anybody else yet. Yeah. I'm unqualified. And so the second person is Paul, who's the main author of the majority of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Murderer. Not only murderer, but also caused other people to be murderers. Yeah. Pushing other people to kill. 
and so he's both like personally and indirectly responsible for these things. And he's the one who said, you know, I'm the chief among sinners. Uh, he, he, cause that's part of, he was mindful and aware and he was, he called us all to be humble and to recognize that apart from Christ, we're nothing. And so, uh, I don't mean to say that murder is not that big of a deal, but I do mean to say, uh, you're in good company. Yeah, sure. If, and well, and there's, and there's grace and God's kind and God's forgiving. And that one act is a serious act, right? When Moses kills that Egyptian, that's a serious thing. When Paul is standing there approving Stephen's being stoned to death, that's a serious thing. But it's not the end of the story. Yeah, he, he's not done with them. Right. It's not, he, it's not permanently disqualifying to God using them on earth, and it's certainly not eternally disqualifying that those people are in the kingdom of heaven, yeah. and they're used by God, and they're secure. And so... If we think of ourselves as too dirty or too stained mm-hmm. in our past, uh, it's because we're not reading the Bible, yeah, and we're not letting the Bible shape our view of how we approach God. Mm. Uh, because, you know, another one is David. Like David's a great example. Sure, you know, he arranged the killing of Uriah. Yeah, he, he didn't directly do it, but after you know, I think committing sexual assault and trying to cover it up, he arranged the killing of Uriah to cover up his past sin. And yeah. holy smokes, that isn't it. Like resonate, sure. like arranging the killing for the sake of covering up past sin. Uh, these are that's the man who's called after God's own heart, <laughs> and so it's God doesn't bear grudges like this, but He's certainly and perfectly gracious. And so, I hope that we see good news regardless of the types, you know, and the types of past sins we have. Yeah, totally. Well, you've been talking a little bit about the Bible. Why don't we spend a little bit of time there, and. I don't know that we've done this on this podcast is to kind of give a little bit of theology for why we would see abortion as a sin for why we'd be pro-life uh, for that whole conversation around uh, why is this even a Christian issue? I imagine some people are kind of thinking, eh, you know, okay, I don't know. I guess, I guess I maybe get why it's a Christian thing, but I don't know if I could explain it to somebody. So help us there. Let's, let's think theologically and, through some history of of understanding, okay, why is why is this pro life? And again, getting that out of the partisan world, but why is a concern for the unborn a Christian concern? Why is that part of our overall duty to protect the vulnerable? So first, I want to say, like before we even come to the Christian text, I want to say, like uh, from a second perspective, why would it be wrong or not wrong? So why why would it be right? Why would it be not wrong? Right from a purely Darwinistic perspective, where you have uh, mankind arising from natural selection, survival of the fittest, eventually leading to uh, humanity as we know it and experience it and see it. Why not would a strong, more viable human kill a weaker, less viable human? Uh, well, it, it has something to do with, well, why not? Because we're passing on the species and it's incentivizing and it's meaningful and it's a process and and from like a purely Darwinistic perspective, you go, what is the difference between uh, killing a one-year-old child who's been you know born for a year, and and killing that beef I just ate for lunch? Yeah, I mean, I I get what you're saying. Like if you follow that to its logical conclusion, but nobody's arguing that. I mean, nobody's really going like, hey, we should be pro infanticide. Well, that is not all true. There's a guy named Peter Singer who's a professor. Okay. who's well-published, well-documented. He's a professor, I think he's a philosopher at Princeton. Would I think makes sense. I should know exactly where he's a professor. But he wrote this book, Practical Ethics, back in the 90s. And one of the things he says is this. He says, killing an infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Sometimes it's not wrong at all. He goes, Wow, on, okay, so that's killing an infant's not the same as killing a person. So that's not saying an infant's not necessarily a person. Yeah, so he, so he wrote this in 1979, Practical Ethics. He says a person is someone who's capable of anticipating the future of having wants and desires for the future. And so infants don't have that. And so what's the point? And so he's arguing in his book. Practice. Did he ever have kids? Because <laughs> my kids would cry frequently as infants because they wanted something for their future, namely their butt to get wiped or some milk or something. Yeah. Yeah. So in anyway, I don't know. So my, my point is <laughs> he's being consistently Darwinistic. Yeah, right. sure. And so until there's the ability to self-determine, until there's the ability like a, a, some type of self-awareness 
uh, until like the the infant rises to the cognitive ability above like a dog or a cow or a pig, uh, you're being inconsistent if you think that you can kill a cow to eat his beef versus kill a one and a half year old because he's economically a tax. Hmm. And so... So in other words, in order, in order, if you're more of an evolutionary Darwinist type person in terms of just the way you see the world, to not go the direction of Peter Singer, you can, you don't have to go the direction of Peter Singer. It's just inconsistent. You have to borrow from some other views of the world in order to hold that. Yeah. Position. So what Peter Singer is doing is he's highlighting this reality that at some point the human becomes a person. The human's not a person from conception, but at some point either in utero or ex utero, the human goes from being a human to being a human person and it has rights and it becomes something like worth protecting um, to a certain extent once it becomes a person. Okay. And so he's arguing that something becomes a person when it's self-determined, self-aware, anticipating and desiring things for the future. Yeah. So that would be sometime between ages like one and four, depending on, Mm -hmm. but he's basically saying before then, that's totally reasonable. And and that's Well, it's interesting because I, I was listening to a podcast on the Ezra Klein podcast. He's a very progressive guy and he was interviewing a woman um who he thought had good arguments for abortion. And their a bunch of their conversation really was around this question of when does an embryo become a person. So they weren't saying you know, they were all saying it's in utero. So at some point before the child is born, but it's not from conception. Yeah. And at that point, you're dealing with lots of philosophical and other sorts of ways. But that's still that thing of going, okay, this human embryo isn't a human person. Yes. And and so that's the kind of not taking in the biblical story. How does how does our understanding from well, part the of scripture it, reshape things? So even Peter Singer's view is that's really problematic because what if someone develops a disability or if someone um, has born with a certain severity of disability? Now you're arguing about... So now someone's personhood is conditional upon their IQ or their EQ or their ability to function in various ways. And you basically end up with like some type of like Hitlerian eugenicide process yeah. where you're determining person, non-person. And this is the same logic that the slave owners used, right? And, and said, well, the reason we can own these people is because they're not really people. They just, they might be homo sapiens, but they're not persons in the mm. sense that we define it. And so yeah. the reduction of personhood. So, so that's like kind of like the late view of when does someone become a person? It's like, well, when they check the boxes that society says is a person. So it's very sociologically oriented. Um, it's very Darwinistic. That's how it goes. I'm going back a little sooner. Um, like Plato argued that the the thing, the embryo human becomes a person at the point of birth because he viewed that there's like these eternal souls that you breathed in when you took your first breath hmm, and you okay. breathed them out when you died. And so your soul came in and left your body um, at birth and, and after birth. And so there's some um, people who want to argue that, well, it's at the point of birth. Mm. Uh, the, but, and so that's an arbit- So again, we're looking at arbitrary points of delineation. Yeah. And we're kind of walking backwards, right? And then so that's a platonic view. And a lot of people would have like the, um, uh, the, the embryo or, or humans, not a person until it takes a breath. And you can go back a little further and it's, well, when they can feel pain, we can't really measure that. We don't know where it goes. Or is it when they're... Lungs are breathing, you know, when it's when their eyes are functioning. It's when they have 10 fingers, 10 toes. It's when their heartbeat happens. Uh, you know, but heartbeats stop all the time, right? You need to be resuscitated. And right. so when your heartbeat stops, you cease to be a person and become a person again uh, when you have heart failure. And, and so going all the way back to, like, at the earliest point, which would possibly be the point of conception, you know, when the sperm enters the egg, uh, which... From like a natural law perspective, in my view, so I'm not even talking about biblical theology here, just talking and from a natural law perspective, uh, is the only point at which you're not delineating an arbitrary start date to personhood because you're going, there was two sets of DNA and now there's a brand new strain of DNA that's neither the man's DNA nor the woman's DNA. It's a fresh new hmm. yeah. line of, of cells. So that's like like from a from a naturalistic secular point of view. I think it's a strong case to argue that the only non-arbitrary point of granting personhood has to do like at conception. Okay. So, but that's not really the main reason we talk about it, right? Yeah. So, no, but but all that's really helpful background, and I think to be able to hear, you know, okay, here's kind of the secular extreme view. Here's 
the way people have to be inconsistent with themselves in order to hold what they actually think. And then here's some of the natural thing. But but give us give Once, us some of the theology. Yeah, one more point. They'll get to the theology. Oh, come on. Yeah. So, I'm so trying to get us one, there, Seth. One, one point is like people will right. say. Make it good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been making it not good on purpose until this point. And now the exhortation to make it good. Yeah, I've been playing volleyball a lot, and people say, this, all right, get the serve in. I'm like, well, I was planning. Or when you leave somewhere and someone says, drive safe, like, well, I was going to be reckless until that exit. Yeah, so make the point good. But the uh, the people will say things like, this is just people forcing their religion on other people. And it's like, okay, somewhat. But here's the deal, is uh, making slavery illegal on the grounds of the personhood of African Americans was a religious argument. Mm, yeah. Saying all persons are persons, that you can't sociologically or even scientifically, per se, determine who gets to be a person or a non-person. Like, that was... The, the arguments that were being pushed and made had to do with the dignity of every single human person. And so it's actually a religious argument. It's a secular religious argument. So secular people think they don't have religious beliefs, but they just have different sets of religious beliefs. And by religious belief, I mean an axiom that can't really be proved. It has to be asserted and lived from. And so why is a human a person when it travels six inches from the uterus through the birth canal and outside? Like, why is one of those things considered infanticide and one of those things considered abortion? And it's, it's a religious argument. It's a belief about hmm. the, when someone becomes a person that's really sociologically and philosophically derived, that's not really based on any necessarily scientific fact, because any scientific fact is going to be inherently arbitrary, and it's going to have this regression problem. And so really the only scientific point that you can say that's not arbitrarily is at the point of conception. And so this is not even really about religion at this point. But I do think that having a view of religion really pushes this even further and makes me all the more um, morally convinced of these yeah. things. And so, Well, you made it good. Good thank job. You, thank you. That was, yeah. that was worth the wait. I'm, I'm really glad. Really glad. I'm really glad. Now make this next part good. <laughs> make this next part good. When's the part that I can make not good? When does that part happen? Uh, that's funny. Yeah, so so I think the whole, the whole idea of uh, humans having rights in and of itself like, mm-hmm. why does a woman have rights? Why does a baby have rights? Why does an infant born or unborn have rights? Is a inherently Christian idea. Because in Plato's time, in the first century, in the ancient Near East, the people who had rights were people who owned land, were males, etc. Yeah. Uh, and so even framing this issue around the idea of human rights, we have to understand that the dignity, value, specialness, um, inherent worth of a person being above and different than other other animals is a Christian idea that has bled into secular society that secular folks now take for granted. And so this is all rooted in the idea of the image of God. And so this mm. is Genesis 1, that it says, let us create humanity in our image, male and female, let's create them. And so he makes male and female, and it says that they shall have dominion and subdue and be fruitful and multiply. And so male and female together are God's image on the earth, and they together are to rule and reign over the earth. And so that pushes against patriarchy because the male and female reign together. It pushes against um, uh, the hierarchy within humanity because now it's male and female together. But it also pushes against like a PETA animism, which is that humans are just an- animals with some extra parts of their brain. Yeah. Right? And it pushes against that Darwinist deal. And that they together are God's image. They don't have God's image. They are God's image. And so that every single person is not a mere mortal, but actually represents something more than themselves. That if you're listening to this podcast, you are, an, you are an image of God. You have the image of God. You are the image of God. And that people should be able to look at you and see you and see parts of God and see aspects of that. And these images, God is personally connected to, and he's emotionally bonded to. Like if I took a picture of you, Luke, mm-hmm. Like, say I kept a picture of you in my wallet. People said, where do you work? Oh, that would be goofy. <laughs> Someone said, where do you work? And I put that picture. I was like, I work for this guy, you know? <laughs> and I took that picture out, and I said, I work for this guy. And then I spit on the picture. Mm, that would tell him something. I'd tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody would be like, ah, oh, it's just a piece of paper. That's just an image. Because yeah. no, that image represents you. Sure. Like, how I treat that image represents... It's an interesting example to just pull out of your head. Thanks. You know, I've been, think- <laughs> I've been, th- I've been thinking a lot. About to go on vacation, you know? So, need a vacation, you know? But that, and if and if someone came to you, like, yeah, it's Luke, Seth took out a picture of you and spit on it, you you'd be like, well, that's a problem, or it represent indicate indicative of a problem, you know, mm-hmm. or it represents something going on there. I would at least have some questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and it's like a year a yearbook photo from you in college or something like that. But because you you would have an emotional reaction yeah. to how I treat your image, and so God has an emotional reaction when we misrepresent or mistreat His image. So that feels like that gives us an understanding for why human persons are made in the image of God and therefore valuable. That doesn't really get at the question of are are they humans before they're born, right? Yes. So what does the Bible have to say about that? Like why I, I get why everything you just said applies to someone who's born. Yes. But why would that apply to someone who's not yet born? So there's two things here. One is what uh, ethicists call the precautionary principle, which means if something could lead to death, we should be extra careful about it. Like if we don't know, then we should be cautious. That there's like this flinch that um, if you're not sure if something is murder, then you should kind of treat it like maybe it's murder. Okay. Because this, what we're dealing with is so precious that you would be careful with it, right? Like, uh, remember, yeah, that makes sense. remember when I think it was, I think it was Taylor. She first got an Apple Watch and they said water resistant on it when they first were water resistant and she was mm-hmm. teaching swim lessons, you mm-hmm. know, in the pool for like nine hours a day. She's like, I know it says this thing will be safe in water. But like, I think the first year she did swim lessons, she still took it off in the water because it was like, but yeah, maybe. Maybe, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was like, because this thing's valuable, I'm going to be a notch more cautious than is maybe necessary. Yeah. And it's similar in the womb. I think a lot of pro-life ethicists and philosophers would say part of the reason is the precautionary principle. Okay. Um, because it might be mur- destroying the image of God, I'd rather err on the side of caution and not do it. Okay. So that's another argument. So that's, a, again, that's not really a Bible argument, though. That's just a, a wise philosophy argument. Yeah, because of the biblical doctrine of the image of God— Therefore, the precautionary principle applies that because okay. this thing is so precious and valuable, okay. I will go a notch beyond necessary to protect and care and, and consider. And we could talk about how the precautionary principle applies to a whole lot of sure. other things. Like, yeah, like, are, are like, there other are there other more direct biblical ideas or texts or things that come into bear here? Yeah, there are. Thanks for keeping me moving forward here. You're welcome. I have, I have a lot of thoughts about this. So, in in Exodus 21, we see a pretty key text. Uh, let me just bring it up here real quick. So in Exodus 21, there's a story that's given. This is Exodus 21, uh, verse 22. This is in case law. So the whole idea of this section of the Bible, it's called, uh, so you have the Ten Commandments. You know, which so is Exodus 20. Exodus 20, right. And you have the, the Ten Big Laws, which are, consider those like headlines, like they're, or chapter headings, right? So Exodus 20 gives you the chapter headings, kind of like table of contents. And then the case law, the rest of the Bible, is kind of applying those laws to different things. And so in Exodus 20, you have thou shalt not murder, Rashak. Um, then we have in Exodus 21, verse 22, it says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall be surely fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and she'll pay the judge determined. So if, if these two guys are fighting and they accidentally hit a pregnant lady and her child is born prematurely, but there's no harm to the child, um, then the guy pays a fine for basically harming the woman. Nobody died. But if there is harm, verse 23, then you should pay life for life. Meaning if the child is born prematurely and dies, it's life for life. Meaning... So there's a life. That's a human life that... In the womb is a human life that you pay life for life. In the same way Mm -hmm. if you killed an adult, you killed a a preborn person, you pay life for life. And so that text right there is a case law of applying thou shalt not murder and saying, here's an example of murder. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. this kind of recklessness that creates the loss of life. So even like that idea that recklessness pre- precludes it, or uh, not precludes it, precedes it, is part of the whole idea of the precautionary principle. Like, hey, let's not fight together with a pregnant woman around. We should be cautious because we might lead to the unnecessary loss or of human life. So that's Exodus 21, uh, 22, uh, a key text. Another key one is multiple times in the, in the, in the Bible. Jeremiah 1, in the Psalms, you have this idea of the Lord forming us in the womb. I form them together in the womb, that God is involved in designing human persons uh, in the womb. It's uh, We are makemanship, we're craftsmanship. So going back, I'm going to keep insulting your craftsmanship because you're sitting right here for me. But say that you <laughs> say that you are creating a, you know, a, a painting, a work of art. You're going to give it to Molly as this gift, and you're designing it, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an extension of you, and... <laughs> you're, you know, you're painting a picture of Molly or something like that for Molly for Valentine's Day, and and you're making it. And I come along and halfway through the project, just dump black paint on it and destroy what you're making. 
right? That's, and I look you in the eye while I'm doing it, you know, and I just kind of give you the, you know. Then I'd think you were mean and a psycho. Yeah, yeah. Like the eye contact. I, yeah, the eye contact. Know, I'm destroying your Black thing. paint tells me you're mean, but the eye contact makes me really scared. Yeah, but the eye contact makes it like, I'm not just trying to destroy your stuff. I'm insulting you. Yeah, sure. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm destroying your creation. I'm destroying that. And so part of the reason that in the womb, we don't want to destroy what God is making is because we respect the maker. And yeah. so that's not really an argument from the personhood of the unborn, but it's an argument from like the, the value of the unborn to the one who's making it. Yeah. And so that's a slightly different line of reasoning, but it's still there that what's forming in the womb is like the craftsmanship of God. Yeah. And uh, there's, uh, there's, he's possessed by it. Like a, He's emotionally connected to the work of his hands. He's a good artist, a good creator. He's not just, you know, folding paper airplane after paper airplane and throwing some of them in the trash. Like he's yeah. he's a maker, an, an artist and a craftsman. So there's that piece. And and the next text that comes to mind is in, in the gospels of the stories recorded a couple of times where when Jesus is in the womb and John the Baptist is in the womb, uh, they kind of appear, like the, the two moms come together. Mm-hmm. And John the Baptist leaps in the womb. Like there's a sense in which like the spirit of God is interacting with the unborn person yeah. in a, in a in a relational way. And yeah, so, it's pretty interesting actually that the first person to really recognize Jesus is an unborn person. Yes, and so this here you have an unborn person relating. Attachment therapists would talk about how yeah. the unborn child is relating yeah. to the the mother sure. and and how like even like the what the mother eats and her stress levels and her ability to uh, stay healthy while while she's pregnant all affect this uh, this child's ability to relate to people in the future not just right now and so there's relationships there's connection and it's not just uh you know like a like a parasitic relationship on the body but yeah. it's also the fact that there's relationship means that there's uh, also distinction mm-hmm. Like, like this body in the woman's body is not her body. And yeah. this body in the woman's body is relating to other bodies outside the womb. And there's even a sense in which the Spirit of God can have connection to this unborn child. And wow. quantifying all that is is different. But all these kind of together push and argue at this idea of uh, the aliveness mm-hmm. and the, the the distinctness and from the woman's body and the personhood of the body and the createdness and the createdness. Yeah. Well, it's in the woman's body. Well, and there might be a temptation by some people to go, well, I don't know. I mean, this feels like something that, you know, the religious right kind of got all fired up about. Is this really the view that's been held throughout history? So you actually have gone and looked and seen what different Christian leaders and thinkers and pastors from early days in the church yeah, a really, uh, have thought about it. A really key to interpreting texts that are from a long time ago is looking at early readers of those texts, right? Because we have some distance. And we, we're not perfect readers of the Bible, and there's also cultural and language gaps between us. And so I have a handful of quotes here that I want to read from various 1st and 2nd century Christians, and one of the things that made them distinct. And so there's this letter called the Epistle to Diognetus, and so this is um, someone um, writing back to the political leader. The political leaders are considering killing the Christians, and this other political leader is writing to say, like, maybe don't kill them. We don't think they're all that bad. So I just want to read this. Um, he's describing Christians in, in his kind of political environment. So this, I think, is uh, second century. Uh, it says, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share things with others, yet they endure things as, fo- as foreigners. Every foreign land to them is like their native country, even their land of birth. They're like lands of strangers. They marry, as others do. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Hmm. They have a common table, not a common bed. I mean, he's saying, like, these Christians are kind of weird. They don't kill their offspring and they don't have orgies. Like that's like yeah. in the first century. Like if you ever think that like the Christian view is a minority and it may be, uh-huh. that's not new in the first century. Sure. It was very common for uh, parents to expose their children to commit infanticide and abortion on a regular basis. And, and that was not frowned upon. Like they basically held Peter Singer's view that we now think is nuts. Like, yeah, until this child's like economically profitable and, emotionally self-cognizant, it's not really anything besides just... Yeah, it was viewed a little bit like when... I remember when I was a little kid and my golden retriever had puppies and one of them, you know, wasn't doing great and she, like, ate its head. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's gross, but I guess that's what you do if you're a dog. It's natural. Like but it's, that's the way that 
I mean, people in the first century were doing that. First and second centuries were doing that in the Roman world. Is like, here's this kid I can't care for. Here's this kid who's a child, who's a girl, or who's this baby who's whatever. I'm just going to leave it out in the elements. They would call it exposure, right? They'd yeah. leave it in a river, or they'd leave it wherever. And oftentimes, it was actually the Christians who would come along and say, "We'll take care of this kid. We'll foster this kid. We'll adopt this kid. We'll take care of them." Yeah, yeah, grabbing kids out of rivers and they're left out to die and. And so really like these, just in that little text here, it's Christian's view on like sexual ethics and view on reproductive ethics and yeah. like the dignity of the unborn or the recently born was uh, pretty distinct. I have a handful of other quotes here I'd like to read uh, that I think uh, make this point. So the Epistle of Barnabas, um, probably even earlier than Diognetus, was you shall not slay the child by procuring abortion, nor again shall you destroy it after it's born. Again, right now, we think we don't need infanticide laws because everyone's against that, but in the first century, apparently, that was a huge problem. Um, the Didache, which is the earliest thing we have outside the Bible, says you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. Didache means teaching. Later on, you have Basil say um, pretty definitively, woman who, this is Basil the Great, the woman who purposely destroys her own child is guilty of murder. Ambrose said, Ambrose, who led Augustine to Christ, who wrote, who shaped Western society more than any other thinker, Ambrose said, um, in abortion, life is snatched away from them before it's been even even been given, meaning life is snatched away before even there's breath. Um, Chrysostom said, or Chrysostom, however you say his name, took it a step further, saying that abortion is actually worse than murder. Mm. Um, and, wow. he, and he's saying that because at least when you kill an adult, they've sinned more, and they may or may not be semi-deserving oh, man. of being snuffed out. That's interesting. Uh, but this, like, innocent... At this point, like they may have a sinful nature, which I think they do, but they've yet to act on it. Yeah. Right. And uh, like this is like people aren't ever like condemned to judgment for having a sinful nature. They're condemned for acting on sinful natures and, and sinning. Uh, he says, so it's it's even worse than murder. I have no name to give it since it does not take of the thing born, but it prevents it's even being born. And so you're you're snatching away possibility and hmm. and like the realization of human potential um, from something that at this point is still relatively innocent. And so yeah. uh, those, those are early, early witnesses wow. to the reason why abortion and infanticide are, are not good. And so I hope that Christians listening to this can hear this and go, the fact that you might feel like you're in a minority position on this abortion thing uh, is not new. And uh, part of like the witness to the value of every single person uh, is part of what makes Christianity beautiful and unique is, is the dignity of every human life, regardless of some like philosophical or scientific arbitrary measure. Um, but this person, this unborn or born person is the image of God. That's really helpful. So let's move now to the conversation about just implications and some of the practical things we think about. You've given us a great theological and historical perspective on this. But when it comes to moving forward, what are some things we should be thinking about? Maybe they're politically, maybe they're interpersonally. We've already talked a little bit at the, at the outset about the engagement work that people need to be doing to engage in the foster system, engage with vulnerable uh, folks and the people that are supporting them. Um, so Yeah, so I'm going to go back to quoting my buddy in the public policy deal, and, and I'm also going to quote Josh Reese, our student pastor, who, you know, he said this is this creates more work. This is not even close to the finish line, this is a starting line in terms of like the pro-life witness. Uh, one of the things my buddy who works in public policy said, the temptation here is going to be to go for the jugular in terms of policy, mm. right? To create these hard line, severe anti-abortion laws that make no exceptions and that punish uh, doctors for doing certain type of procedures, things like that. That's going to be a temptation to what he, his phrase was, go for the jugular. Well, yeah, it's interesting because even when we think about Arizona, right, we don't have one of these trigger laws. So people don't know exactly what's going to happen. The only thing I know for sure it's going to happen is it's going to be a huge mess legally because there's two laws, it seems like, on the books. One is this 158-year-old law from when Arizona was a territory, and and that would say abortion is illegal except to save the life of the mother, and it carries a mandatory two- to five-year prison sentence for those who commit a, abortion, right? So if, if we snap back into that, then you'd be going, okay, not only would providers of abortions, but but women who get them and men who support them, you know, would presumably be going to prison for that. That that would be fairly extreme in terms of the way a lot of us think about those laws right now. The other law that's 
been signed, but it was it was created in March, really as a way to kind of try to jut, you know, get the get the um, court system to react. And it, it's one that would um, allow abortion for 15 weeks, kind of like the Mississippi law that was under consideration by the Supreme Court. It doesn't go in effect till the end of September, and there's a very good chance, I think, that the Arizona legislature will not even want that one. They'll want a different one. So it's going to be a, a bit of a mess. Yeah, and and so here's so he said the temptation we go for the jugular, and I still think the number one thing. So what for the church is double down and focus on uh, creating situations and creating ministries and environments, institutions that reduce the desire for abortions in the first place. That's a big so what for us. Uh, number two, I think, is going to be being really clear about where our expertise ends, right? Mm-hmm. And so I know a number of folks who have had late-term miscarriages that have had to go and have DNCs done, yeah. uh, which is typically understood as an abortion procedure. And so now, under certain laws, those procedures may be unavailable, or even doctors may be afraid to perform them because they don't want to be somehow liable or punished Right, and these are people trying to be cared for while they're processing miscarriages, right? right and so sure. now they may not, they may, they may legitimately have a difficulty accessing healthcare that they need, because lawyers in fear of litigation sure. makes doctors go, "I don't do that anymore. I'm not trying to go for prison. Right. I'm not trying to go to prison, even even though it'd be like a non-abortive situation. It'd be like a facilitating recovery from a miscarriage. Likewise, folks going through fertility treatment and various things like that who are um, nervous about somehow being on the hook or liable for murder when in fact they're having miscarriage, right? And so, uh, and this is even the difference between like killing and, and letting die sometimes is, is, mm-hmm. is difficult to discern. And so uh, asking for lawyers and politicians to be nuanced and gar- regarding how this actually plays out when you're talking about what doctors can and can't do, because I would not want to create situations where doctors are working to protect and preserve the life of a mother and they're nervous to act because they don't want to somehow accidentally go to prison, right? And yeah. so, and so, um, medical malpractice is real, and people should be afraid of committing medical malpractice. Yeah. But at the same time, when you're talking about like an ectopic pregnancy, which is decidedly non-viable and life-threatening, are women going to be able to get the healthcare they need to appropriately process those types of things, which are miserable, painful, emotionally already? And you don't, it, much less, you have a doctor who you can't get procedure from, and you're trying to get general medical care. Um, that's processing like non-viable and life-threatening pregnancies, uh, are you going to have to leave the state to go and get that type of medical care, not for an abortion, mm-hmm. but but for um, processing um, failed or miscarried uh, Yeah, babies. and it's interesting, just even as you bring all that up, it makes me think, you know, at a political level, if, if you were somebody that abortion and pro-life stuff was one of the things that would indicate who you'd vote for, it was a lot simpler in a way because you'd go pro-choice, pro-abortion. Yeah, yes or no, black or white. It's real easy, you know. Now, it, based on what you're saying, you're going to have a lot of people who are pro-life, who are against abortion, but there's going to be all kinds of different shades of how much for the jugular, how strict, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And even people who want to support pro-life candidates or pro-life causes, there's we're going to have to do a little more work now. Yeah. And so the the narrative that a lot of progressives offer is like you are harming women by doing this. And the reality is like depending on what the pro-life cause does next, that may be true. Hmm. And I mean, I think that abortion is murder. I want to be clear about that. Yeah. But I also think there's a whole lot of situations where that if you're inflexible or naive or lack nuance or are medically uninformed or make policies that pander to a base or appease a certain people that you might actually be threatening the lives of various women for various causes. And yeah. so, so I think just being sober minded about that and not trying to go for the jugular prematurely, but to take meaningful steps forward and acknowledge the fact that politics is policy. It's not just rhetoric Yeah. and how shaping culture is one of the functions of politicians, but also getting in the weeds on policy is, you know, people get this reason people get PhDs in it and master's degrees in it and, we're not going to get that level of insight and depth from watching CNN or Fox News. And so acknowledging the limits of our ability to speak into the details of these things, I think, matters. Well, and for me personally, and I'm just speaking for me personally, I'm not speaking for church leadership or anything. I mean, this is something that I have wondered about. And I've actually mentioned this, I think, in a sermon, because the people who are most pro-life 
politically also tend to be the most small government and you could say the positive way to say it would be lean the negative way would be to say stingy as it relates to social services and some of the other things that people in poverty and people in difficult situations rely on and so that's something that i wonder about too is just man what does that what does that look like is there a is there a kind of pro life pro social services is that does that party exist? Is that candidate exist? Is that yeah, not really. And anything. and again, I know some people are going to. Well, what do you mean by social services? And how does it get funded? And I mean that gets into all sorts of other questions that I'm that I don't think are Bible questions. They're like political preference questions, but yeah. they're things that I'm thinking about. Yeah, and I and I think this is where we as pastors kind of need to a little bit tap on the table and go. <laughs> we're, we're, this is beyond us. Sure. But one of my buddies. Yeah, I'm is, talking more citizen here than anything. Yeah, a different one of my buddies is. Um, a notch or two more progressive than me, generally speaking, and we we're arguing about uh, welfare, universal health care, um, you know, paid maternity leave, mater- paternity leave, free formula for all type stuff. Yeah. And uh-huh. and I I tend to flinch conservative on some of that stuff, and he tends to flinch a little more progressive. And he kind of pushed on me, and it gave me pause. He said, what if you're thinking about these social services wrong? You're thinking about them as being for the mom and dad. What if you think about them as for the kid and what the kid should get? Hmm. That's interesting. Like you're you're talking about paid maternity leave as like what mothers deserve, but what if you talk about like what kids deserve from their mothers and regardless of the mother's like yeah. quote worthiness or deserving, like what would you want for every child? Mm. Not what would you want for mothers, but what would you want for every child? And that, that kind of reframed it for me a little bit and I'm not necessarily advocating for that, but I do think acknowledging some of that tension of like just what if. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, man, and I just think about all this, and I go, "Oh no!" Like, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's, 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 it's like this policy. is great news, it's, but it's also like, gosh, a million different degrees of everything. Uh, it's going to be really, it's going to be a lot more complicated, and, and maybe what that's doing, I, I think everything looks simple from a dis- distance. Absolutely, and, and the and closer I, you get, the more complicated it gets, and the more complicated a complicated thing gets. You go like, this is going to really require us as Christians and us as pastors and leaders to go. Let's be humble and let's listen and let's read and let's do some work. Yeah. And let's and, not just spout off our opinions as fast as we can. And I think the biblical principle here for me is this is I don't want children punished for the sins of their parents. Yeah. That's good. And so when I'm thinking about even public policy, I and I'm not necessarily suggesting those things, but I just think like, you know, if sin never entered the world, there'd be no hungry babies. There'd be no babies having to reuse diapers. There'd be no, like, there'd be no, there'd be no, there'd be no. And going, uh, we can argue all day long about responsibility on the terms of the parents, and that's true, but I just don't want kids punished for the sins of their parents. Yeah. And I think being open to those some of those things, some of those ideas is, I think, part of what our engagement looks like. And yeah. and that, and I'm not saying that's a centralized government providing all those goods and services, but I'm going, we can be engaged in that in some of the places we've already mentioned. And and like try to be a part of creating a world where there's no hungry babies. There's no yeah. babies that don't have access to the, the, the health care or the things they need. And and that doesn't need to be a federal government doing that necessarily, but that can be part of the solution. And I think that being committed to those types of that type of work is a huge thing for us as a church. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good place to just uh, start to wind down here. Uh, there's a million other things that we could talk about. There might be more things we will talk about down the road, but I think that's a good place to stop for today. And uh, yeah, I, I just want to maybe close by reminding people what I said in the video that maybe some of them have seen um, that we put out, which, you know, is one, let's rejoice. Um, two, let's uh, have compassion on people who've experienced abortion and realize that there's God's grace for them. Uh, three, let's walk in wisdom toward outsiders and toward insiders who see differently than us. You know, this isn't the time to spike the football or drop the mic or, you know, act like, hey, hey, he showed you. Um, and then fourth, and, and Seth, you talked about this a lot, is let's keep getting to work. Let's keep doing the stuff that the Lord's inviting us to. So I think those are some uh, places maybe to finish. Uh, just so you know, if you're still with us at this point, um, we're going to be, Seth and I are both going to be doing a little traveling at different pieces in July. And so we're going to take July off from the podcast. We'll be back in August, and we're still gearing up for a live show in September. Hopefully by the time we're back in August, we'll be able to uh, share more details about that. Absolutely. And the, the last thing I'd, I'd say is if this you know, really triggered you or threw you off or frustrated you, like please reach out to us, whether you go to our church or not. We'd love to hear from you. 
Uh, we hope that these types of conversations begin conversations. They don't end conversations. Uh, we have convictions, but we're um, also in process ourselves. Yeah. So please, please hit us up. Uh, rarely does a month go by where I'm sharpened by someone's feedback, positive or negative. So I'd uh, love to hear from you. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.